Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 6 and verse 6. As we continue our study through the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 862 if you are using a church Bible. Page 862. Luke chapter 6 and verse 6. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we come to you in thanksgiving that, that we can gather as a church family and that we can worship you so freely. And we ask that you would please uh, use this time to strengthen our faith and to grow us spiritually and that you and your grace would bring those who may not know you, that you would bring them to you. And as we come to your word, would you, would you speak to us in a way that's undeniable? Would you show us how much it is that you love us? And would you also show things that may be hidden in our own hearts, uh, things that we may not be aware of? Would you please bring us to repentance? Would you show us the glory of your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come to a closing of a series of conflicts and confrontations between Jesus and the religious leadership of the day. They don't like how Jesus is doing things. He does things that they would never, ever do. He, he lays his hands. He actually touches disgusting lepers. He calls people like tax collectors to follow him. He doesn't put on a public show when he fasts. Jesus will not observe the Sabbath day like they want the Sabbath day to be observed. Jesus does not fit into their perception of what one sent from God should be like, and that is because what they stand for and what Jesus stands for couldn't be more at odds against each other. Jesus cannot be added to their system. He doesn't fit into their way of living and their way of religion and their way of relating to God. They are about the ego, self-centeredness, vanity, human achievement, boasting. Look at what I can offer. The religious leadership had built a system of a spiritual hierarchy where you work your way up to the top and look down your noses at those who are below you. Jesus is about coming to rescue the broken, the sinful, the weak, the wretched who know that they have nothing to offer. He is not about working your way up to heaven. It's about the grace necessary for the Son of God to descend to where we are and offer himself for us. You, you can't mix their religion with what Jesus has come to do. And therefore, the religious leadership of the nation does not want Jesus. They simply do not like him because he is a threat to their very way of living. And what Luke is doing is preparing us for the ultimate rejection of the Son of God. This conflict has been intensifying, and the blood of Jesus' adversaries is boiling over more and more. This is the laying of the groundwork for the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ, and we are all only in chapter 6. But it is already in the beginning of the sixth chapter that we find that the religious leadership of the nation has their minds already made up about him. The Pharisees and the scribes are not trying to look at the data honestly and unbiasedly, but they are already res uh, resolved in their conclusions against Jesus. And they're only looking for a way to incriminate him. We read in verse 6, 
On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. The entire purpose of the religious leadership of the nation in studying Jesus is to find a reason to accuse Jesus. They're not trying to learn. They only want to incriminate. And the same scribes and Pharisees who were just hiding out in the grain fields one passage ago trying to catch Jesus, they are here doing the same thing, hoping and waiting and watching for Jesus to violate one of their man-made religious rules. Their only intention of studying Jesus is to reject Jesus. And we see here that there's a spiritual blindness that is completely uh, volitional. There's a hardness of heart that is utterly of the will. That there is no longer any ability to look at the data with honesty. The Pharisees and the scribes, they already know. We know Jesus is compassionate. We know that Jesus is powerful. That's undeniable. And we also know Jesus' heart for the less fortunate. That he can and he will do even miraculous things to help them out. And yet it is that these very same people are leaning forward in their chairs, so to speak, to see the next impossible and amazing thing to occur, that this man whose right hand has withered from atrophy, maybe as a result of some kind of paralysis, left them incapable of working. We know that Jesus can heal this man. We know it. And we know that Jesus has this kind of heart. We know it. He loves to heal the broken and come to the aid of those in need. But what we are hoping for most and crossing our fingers for is that Jesus does this miraculous healing on the wrong day so that we can incriminate it. I'm very serious. You know so much about Jesus and his heart for mercy and love. You know about his authority over the human body and illness. But forget all of that because if you, Jesus, break one of our rules, we're going to be the first ones to cast a stone. It was the belief of the Pharisees and the scribes that helping someone on the Sabbath day, if it wasn't a life or death situation, that that help is classified as work. And we, religious people, we don't work on the Sabbath, period. They actually made a rule for that. You can't see the doctor on the Sabbath day, no medical help, unless you are on the brink of death. Again, that rule is not found in the Bible, just some additional laws they put on top of the Bible. But it is in their hearts that they don't care that the paralyzed can now walk and the demon oppressed is no longer oppressed no more, that the sick can be healed and that the leper has been made new, that there's hope for even this handicapped man right before us. None of that matters because if you break one of our rules and question the way that we live our lives, we're not for you. And so they're hoping that they would do, Jesus would do the miracle on the wrong day. Do you see this hardness of heart in the opening verses of our passage this morning. Again, this is not a denial of Jesus' power, compassion, or his ability to do miracles. All of that is a given, but their hearts still do not want to reject Jesus, still want to reject Jesus. Now, why is that, and how is that when the proof is right in front of them? It is because the heart dictates how these men will analyze the data in front of them. The heart precedes the mind. Our own personal desires impact our ability to think critically. We have to know this about ourselves and know this about others as well. You know, I often hear people say that if I could see a miracle with my very own eyes, I would then necessarily believe. That is entirely untrue. 
Right here, there were evidences all over the place of Jesus' miraculous power. The paralyzed guy is walking around the neighborhood. The unhealable outcast of a leper is made new. You can go and talk to him and see his new skin, but that did not lead these people to necessarily believe. And they're not alone. It's not as if they're the only ones to do this. In the first century, there was Jesus' empty tomb after his very public crucifixion. And that tomb was guarded, Matthew 27, 65. And that tomb had been sealed by a stone. And yet it is that the tomb had been emptied and 500 different people saw a resurrected Jesus in the flesh with their very own eyes. And yet that and their testimony did not lead to a definite belief in the heart of the skeptics. Christianity would be completely over before it had a chance to take off if Rome could just produce the dead body of Jesus. You see? See, he's not who he says he is. The movement is over. But they never could produce it. And that's just a simple historical fact that even non-biblical literature attests to the empty tomb. But that fact does not make people necessarily love Jesus. But the reason why people think that if they could validate a miracle that they would necessarily believe is because people generally believe in their own ability to think critically and unbiasedly. That if there were enough evidences, well, I would come to the right conclusions. People generally think the issue is with the data. That's not true. We see it in our text, and we see it in other texts as well, that the heart precedes the mind, and what we want, our desires, actually have a way of impacting how we think. John 3, 16, this is a famous passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the gospel message. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now why won't people believe? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's not about data. It's about what our hearts love. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. People do not want to believe because of what they love and because of what they hate. And if they love something that Jesus threatens then they will not want to believe in him no matter what proof is right in front of them. Because again, our hearts precede how we think with our minds. And we all have a bias in what we want to be true and therefore are more prone to believing that those things are true. What we love and what we hate will determine what we choose to believe. Our heart precedes our thinking faculties. And for the Pharisees and the scribes who hate Jesus because he stands for everything they stand against. And for this religious leadership who loves how they are living their own lives of self-exaltation and long prayers and public fasting and the best seats in the house, they desire to be admired by people less spiritual than they are. Jesus is a threat to what they love. That when a shady tax collector gets to be a disciple too, you are threatening our very way of living. And therefore, regardless of the amount of evidence that Jesus presents to them, they're still going to hate him. Their issue, again, is not their minds, 
but their hearts, which contaminate their minds to analyze the data in front of them with severe bias. Their hearts are exploiting their very thinking. Now, this is not just what the Bible says is true. Now, what we want to be true, we start to bend towards cognitively. Although, if the Bible says it, that should be enough. But cognitive biases are readily apparent in wide and vast studies of human behavior and examined at even the postgraduate level. And even for us, I mean, you can't live in a COVID world and not notice cognitive bias. You can't live in a politically divided world and not notice cognitive bias being prevalent. That people will generally believe what they want to believe, and everyone has their own set of data that they accept and data that they reject. But humanity selects data to reinforce what they want to be reinforced. It's the same thing with theology in the church, that we will choose to believe more of this facet of God at the expense of another to try and justify the decisions we make in life. Oh, God is so kind and gracious and understanding. He doesn't really care who I date, even if that person doesn't love Jesus. He loves me too much to tell me when I am wrong. God endorses a lifestyle of spending greedily only on myself because, after all, I have to love myself and learn to love myself before I can love others. God never gets irritated when I tell little white lies. They're only little. And who does that dishonor anyway? My God wants me to be happy, and I am unhappy in this very difficult marriage. So it must be, then, that God is telling me to get a divorce. I am praying about it. I am seeking the Lord on it, and I have a good feeling about it. I've heard that line exactly from people who have moved away. It's the same concept that our perception of God is informed more by what I want him to be than what the word of God actually tells me he is. The heart again precedes the mind. And this is what we are seeing in the opening of our text this morning with the Pharisees and the scribes knowing Jesus' mercy and understanding his power and authority over the human body and the undeniable evidences of miracles literally walking around in the neighborhood that they still want to eliminate Jesus' viability as a Messiah because he's going to do this on a day that we think he shouldn't do it. And if he doesn't fit what we want, even with the undeniable right in front of us, like the ability to heal this man right here, it still will never to us be an affirmation of his messiahship because we do not like him. He is a threat to what we love and everything that we stand for. And so there is an extreme kind of hardness of heart that is entirely volitional and a way of thinking that is downstream from their own selfish desires. Uh, this is the human heart. It's the human heart. Now, I, I want to make a quick note before we move on. If you notice in these verses, Jesus is teaching at the synagogue. He's, he's behind the pulpit yet again. And this is what Jesus has been doing throughout his ministry that often gets undersold. He taught in all their synagogues, Luke 4.15. Teaching and preaching the word of God is Jesus' custom, Luke 4.16. Preaching the kingdom of God to the various towns is so important that Jesus in Luke 4.43 calls his proclamation ministry the purpose for which he had been sent. You know, when we proclaim the Word of God from behind this pulpit, it's not because we think that there aren't any other forms of communication or, or, or that this is somehow supreme. It's, it's not because we think that a man like myself can really build the church. But we trust in the simplicity of preaching the Word of God. 
and the centrality of the pulpit and take seriously the command given in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering to the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We have in these opening verses of Luke chapter 6 that the Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead, the Son of God who asks his followers to preach his very word even when people don't always want to hear it. We have in these opening verses Jesus preaching even when his audience is made up of the ones who will be responsible for murdering him. They're in the front row. And what does Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, do primarily? He continues to teach them. And frankly, I think this is amazing that this Jesus, who could have put together a real miracles conference and a genuine healing bonanza, not like the fake stuff that we see within our neighborhoods, but that Jesus is more concerned with the regular faithful preaching of the coming kingdom of God, even when it does land upon deaf ears. That even in this healing passage, Jesus' main priority is the teaching of the word of God. But look at how he addresses these heart of hearts who deny the obvious data around them. Verse 8, we continue. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees and the scribes, their issue is not evidence. Their issue is not primarily their minds, but their own hearts, which contaminate their minds. Their problem is at the heart level, the level of their desires, and Jesus wants to expose that to them. Jesus is always after our hearts. We see the same thing when Jesus tells a rich young ruler who obeys most of the commands in Luke 18. He says, Jesus tells him, sell everything you have then and give it all to the poor and come and follow me. Now does everyone have to sell everything they own and give it all to the poor if they want to follow Jesus? No. But Jesus knew what was in this young man's heart. And he puts his finger right on it. You cannot follow two lords if you want to follow me. You are going to have to make a choice. He's opening his heart right in front of him. Jesus does the same thing with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Uh, Josh read that this morning or alluded to that this morning. Who is on her sixth partner. Five husbands, and the last guy isn't even a husband. Why does Jesus bring this sore subject up in an evangelistic effort? Because Jesus is going for her heart when all she wants to talk about is the differences theologically between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Jesus is saying, I'm the living water you need, not what you're drinking that keeps you thirsty all the time. I am the only one who can quench your thirst. This is a hard issue. And what we believe, where do we think it is that our thirst is really going to be satisfied? 
And here it is that when the Pharisees and the scribes want to talk Sabbath and all their little rules and all the mishandling of that evidence, Jesus goes to their very heart. And he brings the man with a withered hand up for everyone to see. For Jesus, this is a man who needs help on the Sabbath. For the Pharisees and the scribes, this man is merely the bait so that they could try and make Jesus a lawbreaker. We hope he bites. And Jesus poses a question to them all. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? Now notice the way that Jesus phrases the question. He doesn't ask, is it against the rules to heal this man? Or how bad does this man's condition have to be in order for this miracle to be legal on the Sabbath day? He's not interested in the nitty-gritty of their man-made traditions, but he goes back to the very design of the Sabbath for the good of humanity, which was created by God as a day of rest and worship and rejuvenation and recalibration. God rests on the seventh day after six days of creation, not because he needs the rest and not because he needs to take a breather. The Sabbath is designed as a pattern for the good of us who need to take a breath and we need uh, uh, to take rest. The Sabbath was always designed from its inception for the good of humanity, which is why Jesus asked the question, is the Sabbath good for good or for harm? To save life or to destroy life? And there's no answer from the Pharisees or the scribes. Just like there was no answer the last time Jesus posed a question to them last passage. Because Jesus has a way of asking questions that exposes our hearts and shows to us clearly where they really are to the point where we sometimes can't even give an answer. Is what the Pharisees and the scribes and what they stand for really what God stands for? Is there a ministry about helping people and bringing them closer to Yahweh? Or is there a religion about something else? What is more in line with the Sabbath, healing or to extend another day of pain and suffering? And this is not a hard question to answer. You can ask a little kid, is the Sabbath for good or for harm? Good? Is the Sabbath to save life or to destroy life? Save life. I mean, little kids can answer that. And we would have hoped that these religious leaders would have come to repentance right here at this moment, knowing how wrong they really are. This is a window into the very core of their being. And Jesus is giving to them an opportunity to respond. Now, this is grace. This is an opportunity. This is an invitation. But they can't answer. Or they refuse to answer. Because if they answer in the obvious then Jesus actually should heal this man on the Sabbath day, which makes him right and us wrong. But then if that happens, we can't incriminate him for breaking the Sabbath because, again, it's not about Jesus being right. It's not about logic at this point. It's because my heart hates him. And so I'm not going to give him an answer that traps me. And they say sinfully silent and sinfully stubborn in their hardness. And this is utterly, utterly tragic. Jesus exposes the flaw that is right here, and they're simply fine with that flaw being there. Now, side note again before we move on. You know, we're living in a day where the majority of evangelical Christians think that the best way to evangelize is always, always, always affirmation first. That belonging to the community 
is more important than believing. And that we need to provide a certain kind of environment to nurture those who are not sold on Jesus. And Jesus here could have adopted the same philosophy and been like, you know what, guys, I get it. I get that you guys don't like me. It probably has to do with your upbringing and this and that. And I can see how I don't fit your expectations, but I love you anyway. And I am going to win you over. And because I love you guys and I want to win you guys so much, I'm going to tell this man with a withered hand that we're just going to have to wait another day. I mean, you've lived with this condition for quite a long time. One more day is not going to hurt. And let's be accommodating to this crowd of doubters because that is how we get them into the church. Let's be sensitive to the skeptics. I just don't see that philosophy in the Bible at all. Now, Jesus is strategic, don't get me wrong. Jesus is compassionate. He talked first about thirst and water before addressing the woman at the well's sexual past, but he does eventually get there. And Jesus is strategic and even compassionate here that he is addressing the very heart of the Sabbath when addressing the very heart of his hearers, but he still addresses that heart and where it is wrong. And the Pharisees and the scribes, their religion was utterly demeaning to people and actually bringing harm to people. And Jesus could not remain silent. And yet he still offers them an opportunity to repent when their sin has been obviously exposed. Now, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that we go out and be the sin police with our badges and our guns out trying to incriminate in the name of Jesus. That doesn't make us like Jesus. That makes us more like someone else. And we don't go and hold blood red signs up at public events without any context telling everyone that they're going to hell. It doesn't mean that. There is a tact that is associated with genuine love and compassion. But it also doesn't mean that we sit silent when we see a brother or sister in obvious wrong, when their hearts are deceiving their minds. Who's going to help them when they're under their own deception? They can't help themselves at that point. Someone has to guide them. It's the same thing in our evangelistic efforts. We have to watch out for each other in love and call each other out strategically, compassionately, and yet very pointedly so that we might come to Christ together wholeheartedly. Jesus is not trying to affirm these unbelievers in the room. He is set on showing to them the root of their efforts within their very own hearts and desires. Now, the miracle here is almost an afterthought. We don't know about this man, what he did after or prior or anything about that. It's not the main point of this passage. But can you imagine just for a moment that the deadened nerves and the shriveled arm coming back to life at the very word of Jesus and the atrophied muscles being renewed instantaneously without any kind of physical therapy. And the visual that what has been dead and lifeless is now vibrant and filled with vigor right before everyone's faces. The power of Jesus to bring life back from the dead is undeniable on the Sabbath day. And we would hope again that that instance might tug at the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes, but look at the religious leadership and their response to it all in verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's not logical, but it explains their decision-making process because of what's right here. Jesus exposes that. And even though they are speechless because they know they're wrong, their hearts don't want Jesus even with the undeniable right in front of them. 
Their hearts are filled with rage, fury. The book of Mark goes further in recounting this exact same event in chapter 3, which states that the Pharisees went out immediately right after this and held counsel with the Herodians. They're not even religious people. This is a political party. Pharisees and the Herodians come together because they want to figure out how to destroy Jesus. They want Jesus dead. They want to kill him. This is the last straw for them, the nail in the coffin. And so their answer technically to the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Their answer is harm. Is the Sabbath to save life or to destroy it? They're answering with their actions, we use the Sabbath to destroy life. Now, at this point, if you're Jesus, what prevents you from saying, you know what, I'm done. I'm over it. I've pretty much done everything that I could do. I make the paralyzed walk. I make fish jump into nets. I can make a demon come out just like that. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead hand come to life. I proclaim the kingdom of God. What more can I do? This kind of human sin and deadened heart is too crazy. But it is only when we begin to understand the human heart in the depths of its depravity can we actually begin to scratch the very surface of God's love for us. How is it that God can continue to endure and love the sinful and hard-hearted? I mean, brothers and sisters, for those of you who believe, think about your own life. How many times had you turned away from God and denied Him and rejected Him? and sought for other things instead of him? How much have you turned your back over and over, and even now, still as a believer, sometimes do? Then you begin to understand and are scratching the surface of just how much it is that God loves you. Now, this is a shocking scene because the religious leaders are filled with rage and fury over a Sabbath while they're trying to plan murder on the Sabbath. But I think it's more shocking that Jesus still decides with resolve to continue towards that cross for us. Jesus is not over it. But more and more with these kinds of evidences of the depravity of humanity right before his face, he is more and more resolved to save. That even here in chapter 6, the laying of the groundwork for his own murder and the setting of the stage for his own crucifixion, Jesus continues on his path to Calvary because he is determined to pay for our sins with his own life. And he is determined to defeat the power of sin in our hearts with his own resurrection. And he desires with all of his being to save a broken, wretched, sinful, sick humanity. And the more and more we believe that this is true, more and more it will change everything about you, does it not? It changes your heart so that your mind can think clearly. It changes your life so that you are no longer, frankly, at the very center of it. It might cost you everything that you used to love and treasure. You lose your life in a sense, and yet even in the loss of that life, you actually find real life. This is what God is calling us to be. This is our identity as his people. We're beloved. We're changed, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And even if it's in a stark a visual of how hard our hearts can be, 
seen in the Pharisees and the scribes, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have loved us uh, perseveringly uh, with long-suffering, that you've given us uh, Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, that the dead spots in our hearts you would bring alive, the, the withered parts, the, the parts of unbelief, the, the parts of our hearts that want to protect sin and, and not give those things up to you. We, we ask that by your grace you would transform us from the inside out. We ask that by your grace that even those here who are far from you are feeling that distance, would you bring them near to you? Would you expose our hearts? Help us to see them with honesty who we really are. And would you bring us near to Jesus Christ who is ready to save and to heal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.